0: On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Associate Professor Niels Peterson, who works in the Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Program at North Carolina State University. Topics of discussion include Niels' academic work on the North American model of conservation, illegal hunting practices, and education and children's understanding of climate change. And we finish the episode with a very interesting discussion of Niels' experience spearfishing. To read the publications and the work discussed in the episode, please click on the link in the description. Thank you for listening. So would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a professor in the
1: Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology Program at North Carolina State University. i uh, been here about a decade. And uh, I study human dimensions of wildlife conservation, so human, human behavior and attitudes is associated to wildlife management and wildlife conservation um and i teach a few classes related to those same
0: topics how did you get into that field
1: um as a child i spent a lot of time around uh teton and yellowstone national parks Uh, my grandfather was a fire ranger there but did a lot of work trapping and relocating bears and of course that like the ideal job to me. Uh, and, uh, so I went to school to get a wildlife degree and in the process, uh, of doing research on white tailed deer, I kind of discovered that most of the challenges wildlife conservation or wildlife management people were facing were related to sort of dealing with the people or the the social dynamics associated with decision-making. So I shifted my research focus and, uh, during my PhD and started, did a dissertation focused on land use planning. And I've been studying people ever since.
0: Are you, what would be described as interdisciplinary then?
1: So yeah, I definitely claim interdisciplinary both because I think it's an accurate description of of what I do dabbling in a little bit of ecology, but a a lot of sociology and psychology and things like that. And also because it's a cool buzzword. So it sounds good. Uh -uh, I'm interdisciplinary.
0: One of the ways that i uh had found you is because I had uh, read a recent article that you did about the american uh or the sorry the it's escaping me now uh, what the America, North American model of conservation and yeah, yeah. Uh, that there we go it'll come to me uh, <laughs> and I found it quite interesting because I mean I listened to I listened to probably too many podcasts uh with uh I guess you could call them professional hunters or public uh, public figure hunters. And they're constantly referring to the North American model and hunters' roles in it. And uh, at least that this recent article that I had read was, uh, you weren't specifically challenging uh, or calling out anybody, but you were discussing perhaps the limits of that model uh, in its two forms, the interpretive and the prescriptive, I think it was um yeah what what motivated that or if or not not necessarily specifically um uh, do you do research like is the north american model a, a new research thing or have you always been thinking about that
1: um it's certainly not new i i think sort of my motivation to work on a a thought piece about it actually came from teaching but so I've been teaching wildlife classes since I was a graduate student, so uh, twenty years or so and And one of the challenges that I face teaching these classes is that oftentimes, by the time students in wildlife are juniors or seniors, they've sort of come to view the North American model as kind of a solution to all problems uh, without really critically thinking about it, where you might say, you know if people are, uh, arguing over what should be d- done about overabundant white-tailed deer. And is it okay to solve the problem by, uh, doing X, whatever it might be like a, a commercial hunt or something. And, and students would say, Oh no. And you want them to think critically. So you say why? And, and they say, well, it's against the North American model. Like it's one of the 10 commandments or something. And that's sort of the end of the discussion. Um, and, and so I, wanted myself just to take some time and think about it critically and articulate sort of where it had value and where it was sort of stretched a little too thin. and We needed to think about alternative ways to justify our decision making or or just make decisions. So I'd say that's kind of the background of of why I worked on that particular piece.
0: Have you uh, received any uh, pushback from uh, from uh, because again, I've come my understanding of the model. Because uh, I'm not a biologist, uh, is uh, comes from comes from hunters. Have you received any pushback from some of the, the the conservation groups that rely heavily on it and kind of push it as as kind of rote conservation uh, methods? Not
1: directly, but I would say a lot of the sort of applied conservation groups or NGOs don't worry too much about. Um, kind of what academics are doing, <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, I did in the we, we, got a, we went through a good peer review process and I think we had a couple of reviewers that liked the idea and were very sort of supportive of everything in, in it. And we had a couple reviewers, sort of reviewers who are strong advocates, potentially authors of some of the work associated with the North American model, and they were very critical and forced us to kind of refine our thinking a little bit. But, but in general, I think that that process was certainly representative of what people in the field think about it and afterwards we we did i i got some questions from the fin and Crockett the club about it i think they were just a little concerned because that's an important part of their sort of narrative and uh but never got any feedback from them or wasn't aware of anything they did did with it
0: that's good you you haven't been bogged down in uh, facebook or twitter twitter posts no, no. About how to avoid
1: life. that the closest I've ever come to that was some research we did on cat colony caretakers. And I, I think after a couple months of that, I decided to stay out of that uh, that arena. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so in, in terms of a more academic question, too, about it, how how does the North American model play into, uh, into academic research or, for lack of a better phrase, like scientific research? Because I feel like that was kind of... Um, Uh, an aspect of of the article as well or the piece as well it wasn't necessarily calling out anyone it was more as a like as a concept of it rather than a necessary Yeah, so i
1: mean i don't think it has a lot other than sort of philosophical pieces right okay Uh, no, no one's really tested whether any of these premises work to achieve any kind of outcome or not that's that's kind of why in the paper we argued that it was largely either prescriptive or descriptive where in the prescriptive sense it was because we accept these tenants, then these are the things we should go and do. And and that's, we sort of criticized some of the implications of that. And then the descriptive side is where people kind of said, this is our version of history. We think this is how conservation evolved in this country. Um, and, and so it hasn't really been at the center of a lot of, uh, sort of research or empirical evaluation that I'm aware of.
0: Okay. So it, it's kind of ironic in that way because uh, some of the debates in Canada, anyway, uh, particularly because um, British Columbia just banned grizzly bear hunting except for uh, First Nations, and mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of the a lot of the kind of knee jerk pushback was that this was a, not a scientific based uh, decision; it was a public public opinion based decision. And so I would yeah, well, and,
1: I, mean, and I, was, I would say that that was one of the critiques of the North American model that we tried to make in the paper, which is there's the principle of science-based decisions. And people have kind of backpedaled a little from that and said, well, science has to be part of it, or you need to think about science, but it, it, it it's almost just counterintuitive because no decisions are, are made with science. Right. I mean, if you're going to decide whether people should hunt grizzly bears, uh, that's just, that isn't something you do based on science. All the decisions we make are political. They're wielding of power by various groups that influence the political process. And you might use science as evidence for some point in an argument you're making, but in the end, it, it's not something that makes decisions. It, it's just not how decision-making works. And, and, I, and I think sometimes this idea, and this is something that one of the motivations for the paper is, is among my students there was kind of this assumption that oh we we make the decision based on science and in some ways that weakens wildlife conservation because you have a lot of sort of you know people who are who could be very effective in shaping these decisions who aren't because they think they're just sort of given based on science rather than part of the political arena where they need to engage strategically
0: right right and also it, it's a at least contemporary, it's not that hard to find a scientific argument for your position. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I put that in quotations because one of the one of the things that I, I I've noticed is that again, science the word just gets tossed around as a as a that's how conservation or wildlife management decisions should be made. But uh, I'm not really understanding. I don't I I don't really see what they what the people who just say science actually mean by that and how and how it applies kind of basically to what you just said, but more eloquently. <laughs> well, and I, I don't know the
1: backstory for your grizzly hunting, uh, sort of decision in Canada, but I mean, if you think about it, they're a very cave selected species, you obviously can't hunt a lot of them, but, and science could certainly, you know, support that, but on the flip side, any species you could hunt one or two with essentially no impact on the population, and science would support that as well. So then, it, then, then the politics come in and, and say, you know, we've got this bound of we know you can hunt a certain amount, even if it's small, then what should we do based on the other criteria and, and all the stakeholders that are involved?
0: Indeed, yes. Uh, what, what other research are you currently working on or planning to work on?
1: Well, in the vein of interdisciplinarity, I'm, I'm all over the place. (laughs) Two, two big themes, uh, one less related perhaps to this conversation is related to, uh, research with K through 12 age students on, uh, the efficacy of different climate change curricula and and the possibility of using students to influence their parents and local government leaders to address climate change. And then the other is related to wildlife governance and illegal hunting, and how various factors play into illegal hunting. We've we've been doing some work in Sweden on uh, illegal hunting of wolves, um, and some more sort of historical work on illegal hunting in the southeast uh, that we've published a couple papers on so far.
0: Do you uh, do you you use illegal hunting as a different than poaching i'm just, that's just- no I, I mean
1: it, it, it overlaps I, I think poaching often has some sort of has a lot of connotation negative connotations and baggage associated with it so i use illegal hunting just to maybe avoid some of that uh kind of imagery right but it, it certainly include would include poaching within the illegal hunting um category but sometimes the sort of rule breaking or rule bending, uh, is less of fear than people might associate with poaching. So in right. Sweden, they have some fairly serious gun safety laws and you're not supposed to, you know, move from place to place with a bolt in your rifle. And so if you sort of shortcut that so that you can shoot faster, you you'd be in this sort of illegal hunting realm, even though that's not something people would associate with poaching same thing with using vehicles to jump around really quick and get in the way of moving wildlife where it's, it's illegal there but it, it's it, it's not what people would associate with poaching
0: right so kind of like uh violent like in some jurisdictions would be considered violations mm-hmm. right yep how did you how did you get interested in in that or wh- what's the genesis of that project
1: uh, well, the, the the original ideas behind that project, uh, I worked with uh, some colleagues at uh, the Swedish Agricultural University, and we were interested in sort of what drove wildlife-related crime in general, uh, and the sort of wolf focus just became part of it because of pragmatic constraints because it was such a big issue there, um, and and some of the outcomes of. Those studies, I think, were interesting in the sense that we found some subgroups of, of Swedish hunters who perceived these infractions as a form of rural resistance, as a counter to sort of EU control over local policy making. and And the people who were in within those smaller communities were more likely to uh, break hunting regulations, include illegally killing wolves, and and also had sort of different perspectives of sanctions, where they were more likely to sanction their hunting team members internally versus turn them in or just pretend like, uh, the infractions didn't happen relative to other hunters.
0: Interesting. Are you, is so Sweden is the the current, like the current geographic focus. Are you, into uh, it's a, do you have interest in or intention to expand beyond that?
1: Uh, well, this work is being done in collaboration with researchers, uh, that are doing similar projects in Norway and Finland. And, uh, there might be one, I think there's one starting now in Denmark. Uh, but we've done some work in the Southeast and some of this was largely, uh, historically focused, but I, I think this may have all, this also plays into the North American model idea. Um, it, it just in terms of understanding how, uh, subcultures of poaching or illegal hunting evolved because it, it you know, the Southeast has a long history and, one of the things we found here, just looking through old documents, was that uh, hunting was sort of a broad activity done by most rural people, and it was a subsistence activity, and it was done on private lands uh, where they were treated kind of for probably 200 years until at or around the, the Civil War. And after that time, there was kind of a transition where, uh, rural and urban elites kind of closed off those commons and in the North American model history, it's sort of told as this triumph of Teddy Roosevelt and hunters, um, over these sort of market driven people. But in reality, a lot of what happened was that social elites closed the commons as a way to protect their hobby and in so doing they created a subculture of poaching and illegal hunting and even today some of those people you can trace their culture and their roots to uh being sort of forced out of those commons and the way they talk about illegal hunting and uh using those private lands and they're not supposed to harkens back to the time that they were sort of disenfranchised from what they considered a commons
0: interesting so it kind of it- it, it kind of mirrors almost uh, cause the, because again, when it, whenever I hear the North American model, it it tends to always be compared to the European model with aristocracy and private landowners holding the rights to the land and the creatures that live on it. And then you have this yeah. case in the United States where it, it it, if not, not perhaps a similar, at least a similar move in terms of closing people's access out. No, I would argue
1: it's, it's somewhat ironic because I think one of the, the ways the North American model is, is one of the ways we try to distinguish ourselves from European models is that it's, uh, you know, quote-unquote democratic, and it's sort of the common man or woman's activity where where it's not back, back on the continent. But in much of, certainly... Uh, private land portions of the United States, like the eastern half of the country. The sort of subculture of illegal hunting that we have today comes from disenfranchisement of the sort of common people uh, by more elite hunters.
0: Have you been, uh, Have have you said it, it's just been a, a historical review so far for your investigations into the Southeast? Have you talked to any people? Who, uh, well, so would, historic, would...
1: historical and based on interviews, I could send you a link to one of the papers associated with that.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't thoroughly read through your entire catalog, so.
1: <laughs> well, the one of the papers um, I'm thinking of was published in a I think a journal called Rural uh, Rural Criminology that doesn't do a great job indexing in popular places. Uh, okay. So. <laughs>
0: Are, are, do people uh, with your through these two projects do uh, do the hunters involved uh, do they is it easy to get them to share what they do what they do the quote unquote illegal practices?
1: Um, it, it's not easy, but but it's probably easier than one might anticipate. Um, some of the work we've done on illegal hunting, we we've, we've used sort of traditional methods where you ask people to talk about a quote unquote friend so that they don't actually incriminate themselves. Some of it we've worked with law law enforcement to grant people essentially immunity for anything they admit during interview processes. And then some of it is just building trust with the community that you work in. I've had graduate students who kind of lived with the people, hunted with people, participated in what they were doing, and uh, that certainly builds trust as well. I was going to say one, uh, one other study we've done recently that I had a lot of fun with is working with uh, K through five students. So, uh, I guess five years old to 11 years old. Um, and we did a study kind of randomly drawn from elementary schools in the state that ended up having a slight rural bias, but it's probably good because we were looking at hunting participation and we had the students kind of pick all their favorite wild animals and, uh, found some really cool results in the in the the children who had had some sort of hunting experience either going themselves or or participating in family trips uh knew more uh native wildlife species and also sort of preferred them versus the stereotypical charismatic african wildlife lions, tigers um or not tigers but (laughs) (laughs) elephants that type of thing right uh so that was a cool project that that we wrapped up recently that kind of showed some of the positive ways that hunting connects people with local resources, local wildlife species and and potentially sets them up to be advocates for those species down the road because they're relevant to them.
0: Right, right. So like hunting is a it's a knowledge practice as well. Or knowledge Absolutely. is produced yes. through that, not just killing or whatever. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and by pro- promoting that knowledge, it promotes, it changes preferences as well in terms of which species matter to people. Right.
0: Did you find the kids had a, a sense of the ecosystem as well? Um, I mean, I
1: would imagine they would, and it, I think it would be a cool, cool study. But th- in this particular study, we didn't uh, do anything to measure their sort of ecological awareness. Um, but, but that would be a great study to do. know the native wildlife one would presume especially that the effect might be even larger in the sense that they have some awareness of how this native species connect to the ecosystem what what habitat might be even if they don't use jargon
0: i i mean i would i would i would presume there would be a sense of of the broader of the broader habitat um just in terms of just even for the practicalities of hunting a particular creature. <laughs> right.
1: I, I hope that this is the area that kind of takes off in the future because I, what, when you review some of the wildlife literature, particularly when hunting is involved in some shape or form, it, it's an assumption that people just make with no evidence. And, and it makes sense. I wouldn't say it's a bad assumption to make, but it would sure be nice to see some studies that uh, connect the dots. <laughs> right for these things despite them being intuitive
0: right so it's quite interesting that you've uh, raised that and and then with your north american model uh, article that there there seems to be um there there's a lot more research that needs to be done
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah uh, which is both from an academic perspective that's wonderful
1: <laughs> well that could be just the perspective of an academic right that, yeah, yeah.
0: That
1: whatever it is you're studying you you find fascinating and you always come up with more questions than you
0: answer yeah but it, it, it again it's also interesting from from the political perspective and i should say i'm a uh, well i claim to be a trained political scientist i I have the degrees to show it, but I don't think political scientists think I'm very good at that. But uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> so so it's quite in, it's quite interesting because, I mean, I, I tend to see uh, when there's more research to be done, I, I look at how the knowledge that is currently existing is politicized. So it so in this sense, it's, it's quite interesting to me that there are perhaps gaps in the knowledge and then how how. Models of conservation, or how knowledge about particular animals uh, um, is used to make either management policies or even broader policies on how how humans can access land and uh, or what the moral or ethical expectations are for how we relate to uh, the non human non human environment. So. Well, I
1: think there's certainly a lot of room for research and education and outreach associated with politics as well. I, I feel like a lot of the most important sort of subdisciplines for wildlife conservation end up poorly addressed because they're so they're perceived as so much more important when applied broadly at a societal level. So oftentimes, our best criminologists and economists and polit political and education people never drift into those fields related to wildlife because there's so many crises in education and crime and economics and politics <laughs> that go beyond the wildlife domain. So, so you know, I, I think those are critical areas, but also areas where we sort of com- compete for scholars and practitioners with in a realm that's just hard to compete in.
0: Right, I've, I would have. I didn't think of it that way. The, the internal. We have e- less
1: competition today for good ecologists yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to work on wildlife conservation. Yeah. <laughs> the
0: the internal economics of who who studies what and where and when. Um, to yeah. I, to that point too, to your the other project that you mentioned about the the climate change. What what is the uh, with the children what what's the genesis on that because um it certainly is climate change is certainly important to this discussion even if that particular project in the methods or the the goals of it may not be uh specifically applicable to hunting or fishing but i mean climate change well, is, is it's going to change that so
1: <laughs>
0: it, there's actually a nexus
1: directly to wildlife in our first study um the 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 genesis of it was that uh, there's Was a lot of research coming out over the last decade that sort of had this troubling yet charismatic outcome, which was that the sort of political ideology that people had uh, completely interfered in any educational efforts and even sort of reversed their intended effect where the more people knew and the better they were at math and science, the more polarized they got. So people who thought climate was a hoax, just a political ploy, felt that even more once they learned. And people who thought it was a problem that we need to address felt that even more once they learned. So the education was basically completely ineffectual. And our group thought, well, that that might be true because adults can be pretty... Perverse once they pick up these sort of this ideological baggage, but it's certainly not the case with kids. And it was sort of that intuitive leap, just like where you say, "Well, hunting should be good for connecting people to ecosystems." Well, yes, but we haven't figured it out or sort of measured that yet. So we designed a study where we uh, had this. We took the Project Wild program. Are you aware of that? I'm not. No they claim it's international, but I'm not sure how much it permeates say into Canada, but
0: no, I'm not aware of that one.
1: So it's an international program that's centered in the U S and operates often through state wildlife agencies. It's designed to educate, uh, in the K through 12 context focused on core curricula, but also connecting it to wildlife. So you, using wildlife as a way to teach uh, key standards that, uh, teachers are responsible for in the classroom Okay, and we took some of their curricula sort of rules and approaches and designed a unit that focused on climate change but connected it to wildlife land use and things like that uh, and uh, did control treatment little experimental program with with uh, middle school classrooms and we found that Uh, that sort of ideological problem didn't happen with the kids. So as kids learned, they thought climate was a bigger problem and something we needed to address. And they behaved in ways that mitigated climate uh, change more. And the sort of ideologically far right kids, actually, the more they learned, not only did they sort of increase on those metrics, but they increased faster than the, uh, ideologically left kids and actually ha- people with high levels of knowledge by the end of the study had the exact same views on whether it was anthropogenically caused, whether it was a problem and, and what their behaviors were. So we found that really exciting. Basically, you know, kids are the answer, right? Um, <laughs> and, and we've been working since then to see if these sort of, uh, good results with kids could be leveraged to impact parents and perhaps local political leaders in the sense that, one of the reasons why these education programs may have failed uh is because the people don't trust ch- certain channels of information anymore they think they've been co-opted by their enemies right uh, but your old children are often sort of seen as safer and less likely to be co-opted so, so that's what we're working on now
0: right I, I, again to go a little inside on the methodology how did how do you uh, determine a a child's ideal political ideology. ideology Well, surprisingly
1: you can take the scales and instruments that have been used for adults, make some minor tweaks in terms of reading comprehension and they work pretty well. Uh, by the time kids are in middle school, they have some of the same, they've are, they're already developing, uh, these types of ideologies in terms of whether more or less government interference in your life is a good thing. And, uh, I was actually somewhat surprised by the, the sort of scale metrics that measure how well the questions sort of work together to measure an underlying construct worked as well or better with the kids as they did among adults. So they're, (laughs) they're already latching on at that age. Interesting. So I guess it's 12 to 14 ish the age we were doing this.
0: Right. So it's interesting to see how, how important particular, uh, learning particular knowledge at that age is then
1: yeah absolutely
0: and and so is was the project to come up with with a curriculum or was it uh or just or as a toolkit for people who are looking to develop curriculums or policy influence or what have you
1: uh well we developed a curricula that's available online um using that sort of Project WILD guidelines, and, uh, yeah, and that one's already available. And then we've sort of tweaked that curricula uh, to hopefully make it more likely to promote a sort of intergenerational effect. So the, the curricula we're working on now is based on the previous one but includes particular elements that are supposed to promote uh, engagement with parents, like interviews, shared projects that type of thing so, so we're working on a second curricula now that 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 emphasizes engagement with parents
0: cool is that publicly available
1: the new curricula i don't think is but the the, the original one is and uh, i can send you a link to it
0: sure that'd be great when i post this up i'll just add the links <laughs> cool is is the the is the curricula uh meant to be like it is it can be applied in different educational jurisdictions it not
1: yeah absolutely it's open source if you will uh there are a couple key pieces of the curricula that would probably you probably want to adapt say in canada because they use examples of uh species whose ranges might end (laughs) uh, It would would certainly make sense, I think, to students, and the application would, but I think students would get more out of it if it was a a species that they see on their way home just from school.
0: Right. Again, breed a little bit more local or familiar connection. Mm Mm-hmm. And not not have it so far away as well. Right. Although, apparently, polar bears are a global animal, so...
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: <laughs> i mean they're circumpolar in their range but uh apparently they have impacts much further south than they probably realize um <laughs> on that note in terms of what uh were the uh in terms of the animals or the creatures or the other organisms that you look was it uh was it kind of like a broad-based or was it uh, looking at charismatic ones or uh or more local it, existences
1: you've got me there (laughs) i I honestly don't remember the exact species i know some of them were um uh used coastal wetlands i think maybe we had a um a turtle uh, for one of them that uses um like estu estuarine habitats. right and some part of what was happening was looking at how sea level rise constrained where the range went for that species Right. So they were they were charismatic in the sense that that they were big things you can see and are kind of cool, but not charismatic in the sense that they're they were a sort of globally known species like a tiger or a polar bear.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I I only ask not to not to catch catch you out, but because I also do work with on seals and seal hunting, mm-hmm. and so and and a, getting into and the understandings of how how. Animals that have that aren't global in the sense of their ranges or their interactions with people become kind of global celebrities in a way. And so I just uh, inter- interest so I am interested in the particular animals that appear in research or in education or in just people's day-to-day conversations because it's interesting to track how how certain again how certain creatures that may actually just be uh, have more local interactions with people become become a global concern or or become a global symbol of a of a problem yeah cool so i i'm gonna assume when you had mentioned uh that you had grown up around uh, yellowstone and grand teton that you're from wyoming
1: uh well i was born in a little town called driggs that was two uh, and my parents house was two miles from the Wyoming border in Idaho.
0: Oh, Idaho, okay. (laughs) The state that always gets forgotten when people refer to those parks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's actually the the little communities there have become a a bedroom community where the labor force that works in uh, those parks lives and does long commutes from.
0: Okay, so did you uh, grow up hunting and fishing and being outdoors?
1: Um, yes and no. So as a youngster in Idaho, I went hunting a lot with my dad, but mainly just kind of wandering around the woods behind him. Um, when I was old enough to hunt myself, my family moved to Texas, which is a, a private land state where we really had no access. And so at that point I really never got engaged. My father would, uh, head all the way back to Idaho to go hunting where he had access to public land. Uh, and then I kind of got back into it a little bit when I moved here to North Carolina as a faculty member, cause my colleagues took me out, but I think I, I just lack the patience for hunting here, is which it... is largely hunting where you go to a stand and kind of wait. And I just, I, I don't have
0: patience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I watched squirrels a few times and I finally kind of just gave it up.
0: <laughs> you're, you're not a, you're not a sit and wait and hope type of person more uh, more, uh, more wander around and yeah and and search yeah it, it's quite a there's quite a difference between the the western and eastern approach to deer hunting anyways
1: so yeah there certainly is my my wife particularly but also myself we we like to spearfish and I think it's kind of like active hunting because you're swimming around all the time kind of chasing stuff down so I I enjoy that quite a bit
0: oh cool okay i've I've not talked to anyone yet who likes spearfishing so maybe how how did you get into that
1: um i've well I've done a lot of research in the Florida Keys over the years, okay and it's fairly popular there, so I had friends that talked talked me into trying it and found it was very fun <laughs> <laughs>
0: do you have a do you have a particular fishing tale that you'd like to share uh I
1: thought about it because you mentioned that often people sort of share their their hunting and fishing stories. But I honestly don't have sort of a big exciting one that that jumps out at. It. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I would imagine that spearfishing, in terms of the stories you tell, they're a little different than uh, than rod fishing, because you're actually going and like you can see the see the fish before you uh, procure it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So some of it
1: is, is it's more similar to hunting. I'd say a lot of it is, is where you're looking for likely habitat or places where they might hide or you're stalking one that's sort of moving ahead of you and trying to get into the right position for a shot. I'd say in a lot of ways more like some forms of hunting except closer because your gun only shoots five or six, (laughs) maybe 10 (laughs) feet.
0: Any any close encounters with the other predators in the water? I. E. Too sharks. close
1: for too close for comfort. I, I'm not very confident around sharks, and you you very often see them. But as soon as I see them, I usually make my way back to a, a boat or a kayak and get out of the water. <laughs> I, I I'd probably that's I probably fish, spearfish a little bit less than my wife because she's more comfortable with them. If one comes around chill off and stay in the water and I'll kind of, uh, follow and try to sort of be a scout and make sure the big fish doesn't get too close.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you defer to their presence.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you have to, unless you're pretty crazy. I mean, I've been out with, with people who, you know, they are convinced they understand the species ecology and, uh, kind of ignore them and we'll, Push them off of a fish with a, with the tip of their gun or whatever, and kind of fight <laughs> them off to get the fish back to the boat and things like that. But I I tend to just uh, leave the water if they decide <laughs> they want to be engaged in the hunt.
0: <laughs> Have you ever had uh, another fish or uh, another like an eel or something grab something off your spear? Um. Or does that I is that have, even a thing?
1: <laughs> no, that's certainly a thing. I know a lot of spear fishers get kind of grumpy when people let that happen because they feel like it trains the sharks um, to harass divers. Right. That's okay. why they're so, sort of willing to fight them off. Just because I know I get out of the water when they come around, I've never had that as an issue. I've had a, a snapper swim in a hole and kind of and have a. Uh, more a kind of latch onto it but i they're a lot sort of slower and less aggressive so i was able to just kind of tear it out of its mouth and keep it for myself
0: <laughs> right okay <laughs> yeah i never i would have not considered that it, it could potentially be a form of habituation
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't they, they say they don't have that big of brains but i think they can certainly learn and be habituated
0: yeah um does it when you do it is it with a Tank or use uh, snorkeling and diving down?
1: Uh, just just snorkeling. I think some people do it with tanks, but you, to to do it safely that way, you have to be very skilled. It's not something you just kind of try one day. Right. Um, too many things that can go wrong with all the equipment you've got going at the right. same time.
0: And so, do you just do it uh, as uh, I guess it's when you're down in the Keys, or do you do it? Have you is that the only place you've spearfished, or Um,
1: we've, we've done it a little bit, uh, traveling associated with like a conference or something, but we don't really do it in North Carolina, uh, here it's not something that's done on the, on the coast or in very shallow water. It's mostly done with scuba and, uh, up becoming more complicated and more expensive. You got to get in a big boat, go a long ways, um, and potentially more dangerous because of that, just because you're dealing with the equip, equip all the equipment and also, Typically when you're diving, you don't go up and down every time you get a fish. So you're also kind of swimming around with a, uh, creel full of dead fish, (laughs) which is something I just don't like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I could see why that would be uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's something that a lot of people do and do it safely. So I think a lot of the concerns are just sort of negative stereotypes, uh, for sharks, but we're entitled to them sometimes. I
0: think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it would be safe to say that you're, you're uh, not that a hot, not that hobbyist is meant as a, to just, but you're not a, you're not obsessed. You're not planning, uh, you know, spearfishing trips year in advance.
1: <laughs> no, no, definitely not.
0: <laughs> is there uh, I again, cause I haven't talked to anyone. Is there a, a group of people is there a community like that that people who kind of that they're similar to big game hunters that there's a spear fishing community that will travel the world and like they have their equivalent uh like the turkey slam or the whatever the other large mammal ones are
1: i don't know if they've sort of named them like the grand slam type of thing but there's certainly a community of sort of uh, like blue water spearfishers, they'll go after, uh, yellowfin tuna, marlin, travel to various destinations to do it. And
0: they'll go after marlin. Just, Holy cow.
1: And, and do some fairly hazardous things. I mean, there's, so yeah, there's pretty tight knit, very intense groups. Um, are people who go, you know, try to snipe Cobia off of bull sharks and things like that. Um, <laughs> But again, that's a community I've never been a part of. In in, in a sense of sort of like a extreme hunting culture, though equivalent to like Grand Slam or Grizzly Bear hunting or uh, trophy hunting in Africa, I would say there's certainly some parallels there.
0: Right. Well, I think I've probably taken up more time than you had planned for. So thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. Have a good one.
0: You too.